0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, this is a good one because my guess is anybody who has spent any amount of time in the workforce in any type of job, at some point, even before we had access to social media, even before that, at some point you probably had a complaint. You probably wanted to call a superior out on something. You wanted it to Be known that an injustice had happened at your workplace. Well, this is something that happened over the holidays, but it is still getting a lot, prompting a lot of discussion. And it has to do with a man who, well, he tweeted out that he didn't much appreciate the fact that he got a $6 bottle of barbecue sauce for his gift from his employer, who he described as a multinational company. And he was even more miffed about it because he heard that people in the other office, they got a gift basket. And everybody was given a note encouraging them to share their holiday gift box, the gift basket. Even the employees in the U.S., the ones ones in the U.S. got the gift basket. The ones in Canada apparently did not. Even the employees, though, in Canada who... Didn't get the gift basket, got the note that said you should share your gift basket, even though all they got was the $6. Bottle of barbecue sauce. So he tweeted out his feelings about that. He was fired. He's a Burnaby guy. He was fired because he complained on Twitter that the $6 holiday gift he got from his multinational employer was less than what his American counterparts received. So our hot question of the day is, should staff who complain about their boss online be fired? And you can head on over to Twitter and you can vote there. You can vote yes, it's inappropriate, no, it's freedom of speech, or it depends. And hey, if you're one of the people that is voting, it depends. Why not give the buzz line a call? Because my guess is you have a personal story if that is your answer to this question. So if you're saying it depends and you can bring in a personal Opinion. A personal thing that has happened on this. By all means, give the buzz line a call. 604-331-BUZZ. That's 604-331-2899. Leave your vote there and explain why you are voting, uh, whichever way you are voting. Yes, it's inappropriate. No, it's freedom of speech, or it depends. You can vote on Twitter at CKNW. I'll retweet it. We retweet it right now as well. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, there are reports today that dozens of Iranians, Iranian-Americans, Iranian-Canadians have been detained and questioned at some times for several hours at the Peace Orch border crossing, this happening over the weekend. And joining me in studio is Len Saunders. He is an immigration lawyer based in Blaine, Washington. But first, we're going to hear from Sam Sadre, a North Vancouver resident detained at the U.S. border for about nine and a half hours. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. thank you for having me
0: so walk us through what exactly what happened
1: oh it 's terrible <laughs> it 's very terrible uh, just shocking uh, my my parents uh, been in the u s before and after uh, after two years I get the Canadian passport and they want to surprise me and they bring me the u s but their stop are families and include me because we are born in
0: tehran and did they say that to you
1: well i as i as i I stop us and i go inside to see all of the iranians have the canadian passport or u.s u.s passport they are stopped because they are born in tehran iran
0: and then so what happened then when you were detained did they take you into an interrogation room or what happened while you were at the border
1: as soon as they took our, our passports, they said, stop the vehicle. And my dad stopped the vehicle. We are go inside. And uh, they are first very gentle. And they asked, uh, where's your boy I said, Tehran, Iran. And the eyes are going to be, a what? And they're stopping and start to uh, say, OK, you have to wait in line. And I asked a couple of people over there, say, what's happening? They just just we are U.S. US citizens. Because we are born in Tehran, they're going to stop us. He so, said, did they say that? He so, said, yep, some of the person from 6 a.m. And mm. stay with us until 7.30 p.m. Because they are release us at 7.30 p.m. It's very, uh, 8, 8.30, I think, 7.30. And very, very hard. And not, I feel I feel discriminated, I feel shocked, why? And I asked a few times to the uh, ladies who uh, had our passports, and she's very upset. She said, I never respect this, but you have to waiting. We have to process from head persons. Who is the head persons? I said, I don't wanna ask you, you have to sit down. Okay, why you argue with me? And uh, Darcy, we are upset. Because that's what's going to be happening.
0: It sounds like so. So, what you're saying too, and I heard from other people that everybody detained there was se- was told that you had to wait and be processed by the head person there. That's correct. Right. And while you were waiting, were you put in a room by yourself? Were you were you separated from your family, or what happened?
1: No, we're staying. Uh, with the fa- I, I'm staying with my family, and everybody's staying a one one uh, line completely separate of other nationalities. Pe- other nationality. Because I saw the Japanese people come and go, Punjabi person, Hindi person come and go, Chinese people come and go. Uh, I'm sorry to say that, but white persons as a Canadian or American citizens come and go. Just, we are born in Tehran, Iran, completely put the separate line. This is called discrimination. I'll never respect this one.
0: Uh, Let's bring in Len Saunders. He's been uh, sitting here listening to this, uh, Sam. So, Len, what is your take as an immigration lawyer hearing that?
2: Well, this is exactly what I I saw. I was in the port of entry later on on Saturday afternoon. I went in there on a separate case, nothing to do with any of these Persian-Iranian cases. And when I walked in, literally the whole bench where you sit down and wait was full of Persian Canadians. Hmm. I've never seen it like that. There was old people, there was young people, there was children. So I just sat there for a little while as my other client was being processed, and I watched the Americans handing out food. I've never <laughs> seen that before. They were handing out juice boxes and crackers yeah. and exactly. handing out cups of, of fruit. Usually when somebody gets that at the border, they're in behind in detention, And they're going to be arrested and deported down to, or at least transported down to Seattle for deportation. So when I saw that, I thought, holy cow, these people have been here for a long time waiting for whatever's going on. Hmm.
0: So is there any justification in that what was, what's, given, what's happening in the United States with the taking out of Soleimani, that they could think there might be people of Iranian descent who are sympathizers who are going to the United States for nefarious reasons?
2: Well, when I first heard this happening, that was my conclusion. I thought, okay, so headquarters in Washington, D.C. is on heightened alert. They're now basically profiling Persians born in Iran and they're now going to basically vet them. The problem is, I had two of my clients this happened to on Saturday. One of them is a recent naturalized American, born in Iran, grew up in Canada, or at least Vancouver. She's Canadian. She was interrogated. So if they're just looking for foreigners, she's an American citizen. This was her first time returning to the US with her US passport as a naturalized American citizen, after spending the holidays with her family in Vancouver, and she was interrogated for over four hours. And it was all the same questions to all of these people with no answers. And what I was told was, as this gentleman says, it was actually the port director who had the final say. So anybody entering the US who was born in Iran over the weekend, for them to be admitted, it had to go to the very top person at the port of entry. I've never seen that before.
0: And Sam, did they ask you specific questions or, or say anything to give you any, any better idea on what kind of information they wanted? Absolutely.
1: Uh, the gentleman of uh, the U.S. lawyers, his rights. That's going to be a, give, give some snacks. After that, this is a question coming up. Where is your high school and who is your high school teacher and where he is working? So how should I know my high school <laughs> teacher where she's working, though? I grew up in Japan, 22 years, and I came from Japan to Canada. I just born in Tehran. What is my problem? And they asked ask me, do you any families close to the uh, Navy and Army in Iran? It means terrorist listed. I said, do you think about we are terrorists? No, we are tourists. We came here as a tourist, not the terrorist. We are not the persons go alone sir, you have to ask, ask, answer my question. Don't jump in out. I say, okay, nobody, nobody attends the army and army Navy. Nobody belongs to terrorists. Nobody help students. My mom is a retired teacher. My dad engineer and me, I'm a filmmaker. I I'm, I'm a Canadian filmmaker. And uh, I grew up in Japan. Just born in Tehran. What is this discrimination? And he is argue with me, and I stop conversation and go sit down. Hmm. This is not right. to question.
0: Had you have you ever crossed that border, across, gone into the states before?
1: This is the first time. And first, bad experience
3: for me. Hmm.
0: So, Len, is that something that could have, and, and probably not, given that everybody was being detained, but would it be a red flag that somebody who was born in Tehran, who had never been to the States before, now was co- trying to go into the United States?
2: No, it shouldn't be. And no. the thing is, I had clients who've crossed thousands of times or dozens of times. It didn't matter if it was your first entry or your thousandth. It's, mm. It was your place of birth. Right.
0: Uh, so Sam, what do you do now you you're you've been released thankfully uh, what what do you do now uh, in the aftermath of all of this?
1: well uh, I, I'm very shocked because I know u uh, s president Donald Trump do the right thing to kill some some persons who is in blows to Iranian government, but not with us i'm just back in Vancouver and I sit down quietly. If I go somewhere, I prefer not go to, go to Japan, not the US,
0: just to not to not have to deal with that. Because who knows what might happen the next time you go to the border?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I never respect this. I told my dad, that I'm so sorry, I waste your half a day, more than half a day, of your time, and he's so tired. Because my parents been before uh, in US last year. They don't have anything because they have a Lexus car. Anybody have a Lexus card? They're stopped also. Right. Not you have a card or not. They're stopped also. And they, uh, I don't know what I'm saying, but I feel and I wish peace will come back again.
0: And Len, is that do you find that strange that even people with Nexus cards were being detained? Well, absolutely. Both
2: of my clients who were detained have Nexus cards. <laughs> Nexus is for trusted travelers. These people have been vetted through both Canada and the U.S. So why would the Americans be interrogating trusted travelers for 10 hours? It just doesn't make sense.
0: So, Len, what advice do you give? Sam is saying he's not going to go back to the United States. He doesn't want to go through this type of ordeal again. And I think most people would agree with that or would understand that. What about people that maybe don't have a choice or have trips planned that are of Iranian descent? Maybe they were born in Tehran and want to go to the States.
2: Well, what's interesting was when this first started happening on Saturday, I was expecting this to be nationwide at all the airports, land ports. What I've come to the conclusion is it seems to have only happened at Peace Arch. Hmm. So, where I was telling people just to stop traveling if they were born in Iran until there's more clarification on what's going on, just go to a different port of entry. It doesn't seem to be happening there. So, I've no idea why this just seems to be a Peace Arch phenomenon. But I'm sure there's going to be, through all the media attention I've seen over the last day or so, there's going to be some clarification on why Peace Arch is doing this, and hopefully they're going to stop.
0: Could it be as, well, not simple, but it could be one port director who was just overzealous and, and went a bit too far? Possibly,
2: because Washington, D.C., the headquarters of CBP, has issued a memorandum saying they're not giving instructions to do this, and they're actually denying that this happened. Mm-hmm. And I said... I witnessed it. How can you deny it? And all of these people, like this gentleman who's on the show with us, it happened to them. So it'll be interesting seeing how they explain it.
0: All right. Well, Sam, uh, Sadre, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I know it was uh, quite an ordeal, and you're still reeling from it. But thank you so much ta- for taking the time may to I, join us. May I,
1: ask, may I ask one thing? Yep. I hear it yesterday. It's 26 people arrested in the border. i I just shocking that. And I, and I need the lawyer for understanding with the government the U.S. Don't do, discriminate, and abusing non-politic people and non-terrorist people. I wish peaceful comeback.
0: All right. Sam, thank you again. I really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you very much.
0: All right. And Len Saunders, thank you for coming in studio. Any final words?
2: No, just <laughs> this is something I've never seen, so it's new to me, too.
0: Thanks for being with us. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, President Donald Trump digging in yesterday, saying his threat to attack cultural sites in Iran continues if there is any retaliation for the killing of General Qasem Soleimani. This happening, as many people are talking about this case, talking about what has happened, NATO's Secretary General is calling for restraint as tensions mount sharply between the United States and Iran. So, what does it mean for people when talking about this? social media when trying to figure out exactly what is happening and what the next moves might be well let's bring in retired major mark campbell he is a veteran of the canadian armed forces uh, who fought in afghanistan and joins us on the line now thank you so much for being with us
4: oh you're very welcome good afternoon
0: Uh, as somebody that has a history of fighting in afghanistan and being uh, engaged in these battles what is your first reaction to what's going on right now uh, between the united states and iran
4: well, uh, I'm concerned, like, uh, like I think, uh, all other Canadians are. I mean, uh, nobody wants to see, uh, more strife in the Middle East or, or, or more tension in the Middle East. Certainly not between, uh, superpower like the United States and, uh, and, uh, and a regional superpower, so to speak, like, uh, like Iran. So, I mean, you know, is tension inevitable? Hard to say, but tension's never welcome, I don't think.
0: And, and maybe uh, take us back a little bit and walk us through your experience uh, in Afghanistan. I know you've spoken very publicly before and talked about that, uh, but what was your experience uh, fighting in that battle?
1: Well, it, it was
4: a difficult fight. Uh, I'll, I'll say that it was it was a counterinsurgency um, operation that we were involved in over there, which is probably the most difficult form of low intensity conflict that you can engage in as a as a military. The enemy is uh, is ghost like, uh, impossible to uh, distinguish from uh, from your, your the civilian population until they, they open fire on you and, 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 you know, they sort of get the first kick at the cat every time because we can't tell them from, from one from the next and, until they do engage. So uh, counterinsurgency, it was, it was an extremely difficult fight, uh, extremely um, difficult uh, terrain, uh, very built up, very uh, complex terrain along the uh, Argandab River where the irrigation belt was that's where most of the fighting occurred because that's where most of the population lived. So, uh, a nasty, nasty, brutish fight in some, in some very difficult conditions.
0: And you were almost finished uh, your final tour when you were very, uh, seriously injured. That's, that's
4: correct. Yeah. I was, uh, I was about, a uh, little, little over halfway through my, my second combat tour in Afghanistan when I was, uh, I was hit by an improvised explosive device, a targeted improvised explosive device. So I was standing on it when they, when they touched it off. And, uh, yeah, that took away my legs and uh, gave me some other injuries as well. So I'm confined to a wheelchair now, and that's really the 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 risk that that, that we have to consider. You know, we've got 500 Canadian Armed Forces troops on a on a on a train uh, a train mission in Iraq right now. So uh, they're they're right in the middle of the hotbed, so to speak. I mean, Iran has great influence over over events that are occurring in Iraq even as we speak. I mean, uh, Soleimani was was in Iraq when when the Americans took him out. So. I mean, Iraq is, is, a, is a focal point for all of those regional superpowers that I was alluding to. And uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a mess right now. And we've got 500 troops sitting smack dab in the middle of it.
0: No, absolutely. Uh, that said, do you think it was the right move to take Soleimani out?
4: You know, in, 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 the, long, in the long view, I suspect it probably was. He was... A, a, he was Iran's chief exporter of, of terrorism, at least from our perspective, terrorism against the West uh, and against, uh, you know, other elements are against uh, the, the efforts of, um, of the Western world in, in places like Iraq. Iran was, was actively con- and does actively conspire against the efforts of the West to bring peace to the region. So, um, yeah, it was it was probably the right thing to do uh, from, the, from the larger perspective. But, I mean, any time you, you shake up the, the regional power balance like that, you're, you're going to have fallout. There's, there's just no avoiding it.
0: No, absolutely. And I'm sure before that decision was made to, to take him out, that was, that was definitely considered. Certainly not the first time that the United States has done that.
4: No, and not the first time they've had Soleimani in their sights. Uh, and that's, that's worth um, noting as well. Um, when uh, Obama was president... He had uh, he he actually had him in his sights, and uh, at the at the eleventh hour, apparently uh, decided against that, perhaps for the same uh, the same reasons you just alluded to the fallout. But uh, when it came to President Trump, uh, apparently he suffered no such uh, reservations, and uh, and uh, he uh, he issued the go code.
0: Um, I want to go back because you said it so just matter of fact, like it was part of the sentence that you were standing on that device and you lost your legs. Uh, And I I think people will hear that and think, did he just say that he lost his legs? Because it seems like a catastrophic injury. And from what I understand, you actually had to be resuscitated on the operating table. I mean, that had to be. Do you remember how that happened or do you remember waking up in the hospital at the time?
4: I I I I was conscious and lucid throughout the whole thing. Uh, I, I distinctly remember being blown up. I remember the heat on my, on my lower body. Uh, I remember being tossed through the air and landing on my back, trying to sit up. But, of course, without the weight of my legs there, my, uh, what was left of my legs came up instead. And I had a real good look at uh, my missing left leg and my right leg hanging on by a few stringy bits and blood pumping all over the place. And, yeah, it was a, it was a mess. And it took about 90 minutes, I guess, in a running gun battle fight our way out of there with me on a crazy carpet stretcher going over hill and dale and through the irrigation ditches and all the rest of it i mean it was a it was a bad day at the office there's no getting around that um you know but i mean life goes on
0: did you think at the time though there was a chance you wouldn't make it
4: oh yeah Yeah, i was very i was very like i say very lucid and uh, and well aware of the fact that uh i'd lost an awful lot of blood and that my blood pressure was tanking i mean my my senior medic was brilliant that day he kept me alive I mean, all the troops were, were brilliant from the guys that piled on and got the tourniquets on my leg to stop the bleeding right up through my medic who pumped me full of rescue flow to trick my body into thinking I had a uh, enough blood pressure to carry on. Um, like you say, I died on the operating table. They brought me back. I died again in Germany uh, with a cardiopulmonary embolism, but they brought me back in the ICU. So I'm lucky to be here. There's no question about it. I mean, they did manage to kill me that day, um, but, uh, you know. There, but for the grace of God, go I, and uh, and here I am talking to you.
0: Right. And, and the reason that we wanted to talk to you today, at least one of the reasons was not just to, to make you go back and, and go through listing all of these, the, the horrific day, uh, but in, in what's happening right now, the taking out of Soleimani and the response to it and being in, we are in this age of social media. There are so many people, it seems that are are throwing ideas out there, talking about war, like it's no big deal, that like it might even be some kind of television show. What do you How do you respond? to people who, who seem to make light of war?
4: Well, people make fun of what they don't understand, and people make fun of what scares them. And I suspect that if you were to dig to the bottom of it, the real reason that people make light of it is because it's just too scary and too awesome of a, of a concept, World War Three, to, to really hoist the board and, 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 and think through. Um, so I suspect what you're seeing is a lot of, or hearing is a lot of whistling past the graveyard, so to speak, if you catch my drift.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And is there a way to, to try and then educate people? I mean, we have Remembrance Day still to remember the world wars. And, and the, mm-hmm. the key message of those days is always don't forget because we don't want to go back to that. Whereas it seems with uh, the the war in Afghanistan, some with the so-called smaller wars, that there, it's not the same mindset.
4: Yeah, yeah. People seem to think that a limited war means uh, limited casualties. And that's not really the case. I mean, you look at us we had a pretty modest um, uh, contribution to the, to the whole Afghan situation. I mean, and, and when you look at it, you know, sure, sure 40,000 Canadians rotated through on, on an individual or group basis. But at the end of the day, we never really had more than, you know, two, 3,000 troops in, in theater at any one time. And even that over eight years of combat generated, you know, 156 deaths and well over 2,000 wounded. And when I say wounded, I mean people like me with permanent disabilities, either psychological, physical, or a combination of the, of the two. So, um, yeah, war is never, no matter what type of fighting it is and, and to what extent the war spreads, uh, war is never a good thing, I can tell you that. Sitting here looking at my missing legs, um, it's, it's, it's not a good thing. Uh, sometimes it's necessary, uh, and that's what people like me uh, are, are for and do, but, uh, we don't, we don't, we don't go lightly into that. And, uh, we're, we're certainly those who serve and wear the uniform on behalf of Canada are probably those who are most cognizant of the, of the risks that they, uh, that they bear when they, when they go overseas.
0: And at this point, how concerned are you for the people who serve and who are currently overseas and currently in the Middle East?
4: Well, you know, I've got uh, a whole bunch of friends who are still serving in the military. In fact, uh, probably most of my friends are, are still serving, including the commander of the Canadian Army, who's a close personal friend of mine. So I'm concerned for, for all of my friends who, who wear the uniform. It's, it's, it's a risky business that they're in. It's, it's, it's a profession of arms. And, uh, I mean, they're well aware of the risks, and they weigh those risks on a daily basis to, to determine whether or not they can continue to serve in good conscience. So I have, I have every, every confidence and, and every bit of faith in, my, in, in those who wear the uniform on behalf of Canada They'll, they'll serve when they're called. There's no question about that. But they'll do so knowing full well the risks that uh, that the, the job entails.
0: And, and just before I let you go, do you, do you wish that people on social media, on the various sites, would think a little bit more about the impact of when you joke about it or when you make light of it on the off chance if somebody, a veteran, or somebody was to see it and, and, and would be offended by it?
4: Well, you know I mean I've seen it all, and it i don't I don't get offended by it. I take it for what it is and and like I say I think a lot of in a lot of cases it's either ignorance talking in which case education's necessary or uh, or it's just people who who do understand that there there are tremendous risks involved in in, in 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 our meddling in the Middle east, so to speak, and uh you know we have to we have to think these things through and certainly when it comes to uh, to armed conflict um, there's there's never an easy solution, and there's no easy there's no easy outcomes. There's always going to be a price to pay.
0: Do you think this will escalate things, though, or how much? I guess, and it's impossible to tell at this point. But how much yeah. of an escalation should people brace for?
4: I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. I honestly can't tell you. I mean, the the whole Middle East is uh, is a tinderbox. You know, it can it can go up uh, in a, in a heartbeat. Um, you know, it doesn't take much to get tens of thousands of people protesting in the streets of Tehran or. Or, or or uh or baghdad or or elsewhere um the, the middle east is 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 a mess it has been for my entire lifetime and uh, i don't see that changing anytime soon um short of a major conflict and uh i mean i hope it doesn't go there i i really do because i know the price that uh that people pay for 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 political decisions like that to go to war um i hope it doesn't come to that but uh If it does, unfortunately, Canada is going to have a role to play. I mean, we have we have uh, we have all sorts of treaties and 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 other obligations that bind us, uh, whether we like it or not, to uh, to acting in concert with the Western world.
0: All right. uh, We will leave it there. Retired uh, Major Mark Campbell, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Have a great day. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today. Well, this is a story that involves a blockade. There was an eviction notice given out on the weekend, but still, Coastal GasLink, which is the company involved, says it does expect construction on a natural gas pipeline to resume, even though the company was served that eviction notice from a BC First Nation. Let's bring in Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief, to talk a bit more about this. Keith, thanks so much for being here.
5: Always going to be here, Jill.
0: So walk us through, because this is the latest in what has been a pretty lengthy uh, disagreement, argument to what you would call it, that's been going on at this particular job site.
6: Yeah, so this pipeline is a $6.6 billion pipeline uh, that goes from the Peace River uh, area to hook up to, uh, to Kitimat with the LNG Canada project. So it's a pretty big deal, uh, and it's uh, but it's run into a... a significant snag, and that's even understated, at a couple locations around Houston and Smithers, where the Wet'suwet'en uh, First Nations is divided on whether or not this pipeline should be allowed to proceed through its uh, ancestral territory. Every First Nations band, including Wet'suwet'en, along the pipeline route has signed benefit agreements with the company building the pipeline. So there's evidence that a majority, uh, if not almost unanimous, First Nations support for this pipeline exists. However, Uh, Those benefit agreements were signed with elected councils. And where there's been a problem is the hereditary chiefs in some of the uh, Wet'suwet'en houses, uh, five to eight hereditary chiefs, oppose this pipeline. And they say their power in determining what happens on Wet'suwet'en land trumps that of elected councils. And they say Wet'suwet'en internal law says uh, they have the power to stop this pipeline. There has been an injunction granted by the B.C. Supreme Court that allows construction to continue, even though there's opposition from hereditary chiefs. That injunction was extended on New Year's Eve by a a B.C. Supreme Court judge. But right after that injunction was extended, the hereditary chiefs issued what they call an eviction notice to uh, the company building the pipeline. And that company... uh, got its workers to leave the job site but as you say they now say they intend to go back and continue construction where there is a real i think an uh, escalating bit of tension here is the RCMP have been involved in in enforcing that injunction order in the past that caused significant tensions last year so it's been a long time since we saw that sort of uh, confrontation occur, but it, all the earmarks are there now for another confrontation to occur between indigenous activists and environmental activists opposed to the pipeline and the RCMP that will have to enforce this court uh, approved injunction. So it's a very messy situation that's sort of been percolating on, on you know, simmer for a while. Now it seems to be going to the boiling point again, and uh, who knows what's going to happen up there, but things can get very ugly.
0: And it seems like there's been no real shift or change in the position of the hereditary chiefs who claim that they have the power and those that want the project.
6: Yeah, exactly. There's been no compromise from either side throughout this whole uh process has been going on for a couple of years. There's been a blockade at a bridge um, that uh, is supposed to send workers over to the job sites. Uh, there's been off-and-on protests there for some time, but there's been no fundamental change in the position of the hereditary chiefs. Uh, there is uh, evidence that uh, the internal politics of the Wet'suwet'en uh, First Nations is getting a little... Um, problematic as well. Uh, there was a story in the Global Mail, I think a few months ago, saying that three female hereditary chiefs that support the pipeline were accusing the other male hereditary chiefs of bullying them because of their position. So it's, uh, it's exacting a toll internally in the Wet'suwet'en First Nations, but it's also uh, has the uh, potential, I think, of being a real conflagration that involves uh, the RCMP having to get involved in a very remote area where, uh, again, tensions are going to be running high, and I think it's going to dwarf, potentially, all the protests we've seen associated with the Trans Mountain Pipeline. This one seems to be in a league of its own.
0: Hmm. Which And do you think the location is playing a role in this, in that it is a remote location? It's not like the Burnaby Mountain one that you can just head on down to the site in Burnaby.
6: Yeah, I mean, the Trans Mountain one, just get on a sky. Train and you're there uh, up there. It's a, it's a remote area, of uh, quite a ways away from uh, any uh, sizable community. So it's it's tough to get protesters there, but it's also tough just to simply get work done there because of its remote uh, location. And it's easier, I think, to stop the work from proceeding than it would be in a place like uh, like Burnaby Mountain. So, but uh, I think you're going to see probably. Media coverage now amp up as this protest and this confrontation starts to take hold up there because uh, the the hereditary chiefs have basically served notice that they don't intend necessarily to obey that injunction and now they've issued eviction notices which the company at first complied with now seems to be revisiting that position and sending workers back on the site but that has uh, the recipe for again another showdown that could get out of hand
0: and as far as you know from from what you've been told in covering this is it. The environmental risk that the hereditary chiefs are opposed to?
6: Well, uh, they fear the environmental risk, but also they they argue there are archaeological artifacts and sacred sites that are in danger of being violated here because of the pipeline construction. I think that's more at the heart of their argument that uh, their ancestral land, uh, which again has never been, you know, it's not part of a treaty, they still claim title to it, uh, that they have the right to govern what goes on that land, particularly as it results in the impact on archaeological uh, burial sites and such. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a very compelling argument for many people, but again, the courts have ruled twice now that that pipeline can proceed through there. And it's going to be interesting for the NDP government as it begins to implement the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, known as UNDRIP, which is supposed to be, um, you know, accommodate First Nations' rights, how they handle this real political hot potato when you've got evidence that the majority of First Nations want this pipeline to proceed because they see real economic benefit for their people. Uh, versus the ancestral claims of their hereditary chiefs, who argue that uh, there's something more important at stake than the economic benefits for this pipeline. And it'll be interesting to see where the NDP comes down on this. I think as a government, they're going to discover they have to implement and support the rule of law, which means backing the Supreme Court judge and the RCMP in this. But I can tell you, this is uh, it was one one thing for the NDP to take a position on issues like this when they're in opposition. Now they're in government. The stakes are much higher. The responsibilities are much different, and. It'll It'll be interesting to see how David Eby, the Attorney General, proceeds here.
0: Well, and we uh, also see the, the uh, opposition, the Liberals, taking this opportunity as well to call them out on it.
6: Yes, Doug Donaldson, the Forest Minister, posed for a picture with the protesters last year. Uh, now, he has Doug Donaldson, who represents the up north, the riding, very, very northern riding. Uh, he has a lot of uh, First Nations, including Wet'suwet'en members, as part of his constituency. And his defense is, look, I'm just meeting with them. They're my constituents. Um, and, but the, the liberals are saying, as a Minister of the Crown, you cannot take side with people who are breaking a V.C. Supreme Court order. And that's why the the liberals reissued basically the same news release they put out a year ago this month uh, saying Doug Donaldson should resign because the minister of county shouldn't be meeting with them. But um, I don't see that happening just because they say you should resign doesn't mean that's going to happen. But it does, again, you know, put Doug Donaldson in an interesting position because he's trying to represent his constituents at the same time as a minister. He can't be really supporting those who are advocating breaking the law when it comes to a Supreme Court ruling.
0: All right, so we will see what happens next. Keith, thank you so much. Okay, take care. This is our hot question of the day. A Burnaby man was fired because he complained on Twitter that a $6 holiday gift from his multinational employer was less than what his American counterparts received. So our question to you, should staff who complain about their boss online be fired? You can vote right now. Yes, it's inappropriate. No, it's freedom of speech. Or it depends. Now, if you vote, it depends. My guess is you might have a personal story about this. If that is the case, then by all means, give the buzz line a call. Put your vote there and tell us a little bit about your experience with outing, but calling out your boss or your company about something that you've received, maybe it was a gift like the Burnaby Man. And part of the reason, for a bit of context, part of the reason that he was so upset about the barbecue sauce was because he knew or he found out through somebody else in the company that his American counterparts, the employees in the States, they actually got a holiday gift basket. But to make it even worse, to pour that barbecue sauce right in the wound, they actually got a letter. The entire company, staff of the entire company, got a letter encouraging people to share the items of their holiday gift basket with others. The only problem was that letter also went to the employees who only got the $6 bottle of barbecue sauce. So this person went to Twitter, put it out there. What makes it even more convoluted is he tweeted it from an anonymous Twitter account, thinking probably that he was safe from any kind of repercussions problem was he had previously tweeted on that account a picture of himself at work, showing his work in the background. So it was pretty easy to identify him. Anyway, he's been fired. He was fired a few days, not too, too long after. And that is why we decided to make that our hot question of the day. And I'll share some of those results a bit later on in the program. But right now, let's bring in Andrew Goldberg. He's an employment lawyer, also an associate at Sanfiru to mark LLP. Andrew, thanks so much for being with us.
7: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: Uh, Let's talk about what is appropriate and not appropriate. If you're an employee, we'll use this as an example. Say you're an employee of a multinational company. I think in this case, the company operates in the United States and Canada. What can and can you not do when it comes to calling out uh, superiors on social media?
7: Well, I mean, there's a great spectrum of what you can and cannot do. Um, A lot of it will also come down to what kind of policies are in place with respect to Kind of social media usage. It's obviously a huge concern these days with employees posting uh, arguably defamatory or otherwise information on their social media accounts that could potentially hurt the reputation of the company. But in a case like this, I mean, you'd really have to argue that this post goes to the root of the employment contract between the parties, and my position would be it, it unlikely does.
0: All right. So, so who was right in this case? Well,
7: I mean I, words of wisdom would be if you can avoid uh, posting on social media about your employer, you might want to do that um, however, that being said, I would not think that this is a warrants a just cause dismissal. I mean he strictly spoke to his Christmas gift it's not like he absolutely obliterated the company um you know, for something more substantial. He was just pissed off about the, <laughs> his he
0: didn't like his g- gift. getting some hot
7: sauce. Hot <laughs> 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 sauce looks good, mind you, but I mean, you know, he clearly, as, you know, reading the articles, reading some of the information, it sounds like they were used to getting more substantial Christmas gifts, and clearly he took this as a slight, which, well, you know, is understandable during the Christmas season to some degree
0: no i I suppose now, what about the fact that he was tweeting it from an anonymous account, but he had tweeted before, so it was pretty easy it didn 't take uh, a very highly trained sleuth to figure out who was behind the account. What if you get caught tweeting uh, disparaging things from an anonymous account? Is that worse
7: well i mean if I mean I guess the theory would be if it was truly anonymous, they could never <laughs> get back to that person right so clearly, in this instance uh, there was some information on the account, which the employer was able to then tie to him. Um, so clearly that was problematic. So in this instance, you know, they were able to verify his identity. And as an employee of the company, you know, they clearly took issue with it. Firing him the day before New Year's is another story. But, you know, they acted, I guess, accordingly.
0: And what about how much of it do you think in a case like this, does your post post Attitude matter in that maybe had he been apologetic, had he put out another tweet? Or, uh, does it matter? I mean, once do you think that once it's out there, the company will decide to fire you, or are there things you can do to smooth things over?
7: Well, my understanding was actually that this individual deleted the post shortly after posting it, without the company prompting him to even do so. Um, so, I mean, if the concern from the employer's perspective is their reputation, um, the less time that the post is up the better right mm-hmm. i mean what's problematic in this case is that this individual received no severance pay um and in order to withhold the severance pay the company would essentially have to establish that it had just cause to terminate him and by taking down the post shortly after and even just the content of the post itself just speaking to a christmas gift a hot sauce i i highly doubt that uh, Court would find that this was just cause and would would um, agree that the company should withhold its severance.
0: And do companies generally have anywhere in when you sign on with a company, it's kind of like the terms and of service when you're buying any electronic or something. Nobody actually reads every word of them. Do companies <laughs> generally have somewhere in that contract you won't say anything, you won't talk to media, you won't go out and, and say anything negative about the company?
7: Well, typically, from at least my experience, it's pretty seldom that you find it in an employment agreement itself. Um, More often than not, the company has a policy on social media usage. And what a a company would be advised to do, and what they typically do, is have the employees sign off on the bottom, indicating that they have read and understand the terms. So if they want to come back and say, oh, I didn't really read it, I just signed it, court might not give much credence to that, considering they did sign it.
0: All right. Uh, what do we learn from this this case then? What is our number one takeaway, do you think?
7: Well, I mean, from a personal perspective, I would just shy away from social media usage when it comes to, you know, attacking something that the company has done or otherwise. I mean, at the end of the day, the question is, can you terminate someone for their actions, right? The company can always terminate someone without cause. So if, a com- if the, the employer in this case didn't like the message uh, that was posted, they could let that person go, but they just have to pay them their severance. Uh, the reality is, though, that they tried to take the position that it was so, so horrific, this post, that they had no choice but to fire them for cause and withhold the severance. So I think that's really the, the big problem here in this case.
0: All right. Well, good advice and good insight on this. Uh, Andrew Goldberg, thank you so much for being with us. I appreciate it.
7: I know it was a pleasure. Have a great rest of your day. Allies called for restraint and
6: de-escalation. A new conflict would be in no one's interest.
0: That was NATO's Secretary General Jans Stoltenberg calling for restraint as tensions mount sharply between the United States and Iran after Iran's top general was killed in a U.S. airstrike. Now there are questions about a Canadian-led training mission in Iraq and questions that put that into limbo. It was suspended over the weekend because of the ongoing crisis in the Middle East. But we heard also from Stoltenberg that uh, there are no plans to shut it down permanently. In fact, he is defending the training mission as essential for defeating the Islamic State of Iraq. Well, joining me on the line now is Reggie Cicchini, Global News Radio producer based in Washington, D.C. Reggie, thanks so much for being with us. Good afternoon. And uh, I know you've been reporting on this uh, on the news as well. Bring us uh, up to speed. What is the latest in what's happening now with this training mission in Iraq?
5: So, yeah, this training mission
0: uh, in Iraq, uh, we Alright, we're gonna try and re-establish contact with Reggie. You gotta love technology. It always is right there. Uh, Just to give you a bit more background on uh, what is happening, as I mentioned, the mission itself is in limbo, suspended over the weekend because of the ongoing crisis. Uh, The mission includes about 250 Canadian soldiers. It is being commanded by a Canadian general, and as we heard from the uh, UN Secretary General calling it absolutely crucial that it is essential in that region. All right, let's bring Reggie Cicchini back in. Reggie, sorry about that.
5: Hey, that was uh, just technology not uh, not working well on the first day back.
0: (laughs) Not our friend, but sounding much more solid now. All right, so what is happening with this training mission?
5: Well, so the training uh, mission—it's not officially cancelled out. Uh, You know, Canadian military sources are simply saying that this is a uh, a pause, and it's simply out of uh, kind of a due diligence thing. That's coming from the defense minister as well, saying that they're monitoring the situation and that uh, you know coalitions, when it comes to naval, NATO rather, they're stable uh, and they are simply uh, trying to make sure that they can uh, kind of keep everything on the ground, understanding that situations are volatile, that uh, you know, ground is always shaky in the Middle East, and. Simply trying to pull back and monitor a situation is better than kind of wiping something out in its complete totality uh, or kind of overstepping your ground. So I think they're, uh, you know, not only just looking at Canada, you're looking at kind of the world as a a whole when they have an interest in the Middle East or an interest in keeping things safe in the Middle East. uh, The best thing to do is kind of sit back and watch how things are playing out.
0: So, was it a bit of a knee-jerk reaction? Do you think to uh, immediately after the airstrike uh, that killed the top general to say that this this uh, this mission could be canceled?
5: Well, I don't think it was. It could be considered as knee-jerk. It simply could also be taken as a uh, you know a situation is going to be uh, is going to be rocky, is going to be kind of shaky, and the last thing you want to do is possibly do anything that could be seen as a provocation. So I think to kind of step back and look at how things are going, it plays uh, favorable for everybody who's trying to take part in something.
0: Right, and I guess one of the concerns though could also be if you did cancel it immediately, it might show a sign of weakness.
5: Of course it might show a sign of weakness, and uh, there are opportunities for uh, players in the Middle East, particularly Iran or any of Iran's proxies that operate through the Middle East, to kind of uh, take advantage of any kind of opening and try to use it as an opportunity to push propaganda or push influence further than what they're doing already. Uh, And I I think that this is why uh, you're seeing something... And you're seeing uh, Canada and NATO simply say things are being paused and not being replaced or not being put uh, kind of through a review. It's to simply, again, sit back, watch the situation, monitor how things are going. Tensions are going to remain high no matter what happens, no matter what's paused and what's ongoing or not, uh, and kind of review things and see how things move forward.
0: And tensions being high, again, not a huge surprise. Uh, As we know, this isn't the first time the United States has taken out a top official that has uh, launched an airstrike to do this. I I guess, do we think what's kind of different this time is the follow up tweeting by the president and the follow up almost kind of uh, poking the stick at the bear following this?
5: I mean, that's causing problems right now, and it's causing a lot of discussion in Washington and likely causing a lot of discussion through parts of the EU as well. When the president's saying that, you know, he's going to potentially, uh, you know, like you said, poke that bear by saying that there could be uh, uh, additional targets that are struck in Iran if they continue to uh, carry out threats or at least hold threats over any kind of American interest or American uh, citizen or diplomat who's working in that region. And the president is finding himself up against the possibility that he could be facing a war crime both from the International Criminal Court and from uh, his own domestic sources because any kind of attack that takes place in the Middle East that goes above and beyond the nature of an attack that was uh, kind of put towards the United States can be seen as going against military law in the United States. So there are questions right now as to who's whispering things into President Trump's ear if he's working things on his own. And this is why there is a uh, kind of growing call for the president to declassify any of the information uh leading up to and surrounding that attack in Iraq last week.
0: Uh, Do you think uh, there's any um, likelihood that will happen?
5: Well, I mean, the president is expected to uh, address the full Senate on Wednesday. We don't have an idea as to what he's going to say as of yet. We know he's not going to address anybody from the House, but we do know that the so-called gang of eight who deal with these kind of uh, foreign military uh, operations overseas, uh, they weren't notified ahead of this attack. They were notified within the uh, 48 hours that is constitutionally mandated for that to take place. Uh, But what the president ultimately is going to say uh, on Wednesday is still unknown. We know that the people in the administration, including secretary of uh, state mike pompeo continue to pat the president on the back for this move saying that they took you know a quote a bad guy off the field what they aren't doing are explaining what was leading up to this they won't explain what the uh imminent threats that they believe were out there are and we're hoping potentially that the president is going to lay that out on the line when he speaks on wednesday
0: but is he under any obligation to do so
5: no, well, the president used Twitter to simply say that he's not under any obligation to kind of give any information out. It's just simply past protocol uh, that has kind of led to where we are now. Presidents oftentimes will give uh, instruction to Congress of what they're going to do when it comes to laying out an attack, because it oftentimes can create a bit of uh, uh, of an uneasy situation when one country releases an attack on another country, and you have to deal with uh, what the fallout's going to be militarily. You have to deal with what the fallout's going to be diplomatically for posts around the world and for your people. So that's why a president goes to Congress, uh, because they're supposed to be seen as co-equal branches of government. We've seen President Trump rally and fight back against Congress uh, significantly during both the Mueller investigation and the Ukraine investigation, which led to impeachment. Uh, so I think that he just looked at this as an opportunity to do what he thought was best to try and uh, you know, de-escalate a situation that has uh, you know kind of flipped on the reverse and has escalated further.
0: And NATO's uh, Secretary General also calling for uh, not a de-escalation, but asking that things not escalate. Uh, That was uh, also something that he said following that meeting today. Uh, I I guess it's just uh, we don't know at this point if Iran's going to listen to him.
5: No, we don't know if Iran's going to listen to that, but there are calls from uh, outside of NATO as well uh, for, uh, for things to not kind of step up any further than they are right now, up to and including uh, Russia, who has also said that the situation needs to kind of de-escalate or not grow any further than where it is right now. The German Chancellor Angela Merkel meeting with Vladimir Putin to discuss these rising tensions in the Middle East because Iran uh, is simply an unknown player. They're oftentimes trying to act out their own will by trying to push their own influence throughout the uh, Middle East. Their goal, according to the person who has now replaced uh, Soleimani, is to remove U.S. troops from the entire Middle East region. So there is an opportunity for things to grow further than where they are right now, and to have somebody like Russia, who would ultimately be pulled into any kind of uh, battle through the Middle East, to have them say, maybe we should settle this down a bit, or to have Israel say, this is an American problem, Oh, well, this is not an Israeli problem right now. So there is is uh, still kind of shaky gravity uh, about the situation right now.
0: All right, we'll leave it there. Reggie, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah today. Turning our attention to a local story, and Vancouver police say at this point there is no in uh, update in the investigation into the death of 62-year-old Jesus Cristobal Esteban. He is the man who was taken to hospital after an assault that took place on New Year's Day in Oppenheimer Park. He fell unconscious. He died uh, sometime later following that assault. And certainly that news has reignited the conversation on what. Should the future of that park of the tent city in that park look like and joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Chrissy Brett who works as a liaison for the residents of the park Chrissy thank you so much for being with us Thank you for having me. Um, I know you were just at a service for uh, the gentleman who passed away, so my condolences and thank you again on this day, which I'm sure is a difficult day uh, for doing this. What are your thoughts, though, as far as the future of Oppenheimer? What what can be done to ensure this doesn't happen again?
8: I think looking at the larger crisis of um, the current drug crisis that we're in, not from the homeless crisis that we're in, but there's violence in a lot of the places where you see marginalized people, where you see people struggling with mental health and addiction issues without the right supports to be able to ensure that people have the tools to deal with the traumas that they've faced within their lives. and. I think if you look at the violence that's happened um, elsewhere, you don't see that same demand for change. There was a murder in Surrey, and you don't see the victim's um, criminal history being drugged through the mud. You don't see um, the person who was charged with the second murder in S- like of the year in Surrey being having their entire community demonized because of one person's action and choice in a physical altercation that I do not believe was something that anyone intended with death. And I think that... That's something that all people, men and women, need to really consider nowadays. I mean, it could happen to anyone. People are killed on the ice. People are killed in boxing matches when people are fighting. And accidents happen. And those consequences ripple out not only into the victim's family, but the person that had initiated that violence, right? Like, those are lives that will never, ever be the same. And so we need to continue to push for safe supply, we need to continue to work for services. Or parks across Vancouver. We need to ensure that people feel safe in their parks, whether they're homeless or not. We need to ha- ensure that there are safe places for people to go. When people are just barely surviving, people aren't thinking right because they're just surviving. So, if there were things like warming tents so that people who are really struggling and who are dealing with this weather outside aren't feeling so distraught. And so, isolated and so alone. We're finding people that don't live in the park sometimes crying at three o'clock in the morning because they're in pain because they're so cold and yet there aren't even warming stations open because unless it feels like minus five, Vancouver thinks that you don't need like any type of warm shelter and that's not okay. So We really need to look at supporting our community where they're at and ensuring that there's places for people to go. Over the holidays, I had four people come and ask if they could get some help going into detox. And as they're being up to a two-week wait, by the time people are ready to go, they're quite often moved on to another park, to another place. And we've lost those opportunities for people to really take a step forward, like Hayes did with his life, in turning his life around and becoming a real positive part of the downtown east side that will be sadly, like, missed and never forgotten.
0: You mentioned Surrey, and I know you talked about this on Saturday as well, uh, that when there's violence in Surrey, there's not an attempt to shut down the neighbourhood. However, I mean, there was a tent city on the Wally Strip for years, and there was a huge effort to clean it up, but to move people into housing, and they did. They they completely
8: created new modular housing. They didn't freeze out homeless people for nine months between January and August. To not create new housing, but to freeze the people that are at the top of a triage BC housing list, they created new modular housing for people on the strip. So we need to really look at what Vancouver is doing. Have they offered any type of land up to BC housing to create some new housing to ensure that the most marginalized people out on the street are the ones that get the housing first. Because right now, if they attempt another clearing out of Oppenheimer Park, we will be looking at 200 people that are at the top of BC Housing's vulnerability assessment tool in ensuring that the most vulnerable get housing. And... be risking leaving the most vulnerable out on the streets. So, but, so we is the need only option real solutions around housing for people. We have ten thousand people on a BC housing waiting list across BC. This is a housing crisis that we're in that isn't going to be solved just by shoveling people or shuffling them back to alleys, back to doorways, back to other parks, and to
0: die alone. But is the only option then modular housing? Because we have heard that, that people have been offered shelter space. And if it's an option between a shelter space and freezing cold at 3 o'clock in the morning, isn't a shelter space better?
8: If it depends on what part of your life is susceptible to PTSD and trauma in a shelter space. If you were in dire need and grew up in residential school, in and out of foster care, where there are past histories of physical, sexual, emotional, mental abuse, are you going to put yourself in a place where you feel re-traumatized? When I've worked with veterans who have been a part of not this tent city, but other tent cities, there are veterans who don't feel safe in a shelter space because of the noises and jarring sounds. Really triggers them back to when they were in combat. So, would you be saying that same thing to a veteran? Well, I would question if the veterans, I would actually,
0: I would question if that veteran sitting in Oppenheimer Park while a chop shop of bicycles is going on behind him, if that wouldn't be jarring also.
8: I think some of the times having that community and the friends and the space and the community does definitely allow veterans to feel safe. Uh, We worked with one veteran that was placed into SR housing that looked like an army barrack and outside of his room had an air conditioner and air heating return system that continuously was going... And he became suicidal in his housing and his SRO. So are we going to start blaming veterans who are triggered by their housing, by the noises and the aesthetics that it's made to create PTSD where they become suicidal and say that
0: you should stay in that housing because that's all you deserve? Uh, No, absolutely not. Uh, But Chrissy, we'll have to leave it there. We are out of time. Uh, Chrissy Brett is a liaison for the residents of Oppenheimer Park, uh, looking at what might happen in that park in the future and uh, what solutions might be able to be found. Well, if you are a transit user, you are probably interested to learn a bit more about rapid bus. It has launched today, and joining us to talk a bit more about what this means for the system is the CEO of TransLink Kevin Desmond. Kevin, thanks so much for being with us
3: Good afternoon, Jill. Thanks for having me
0: well, what exactly is rapid bus
3: well it 's a stepped up service on on five routes, three brand new uh, services and and two um, improved services and and really what it 's about is is faster, more reliable, and more frequent service. We know those are the three key elements that, that drive um, transit ridership and what our customers are really looking for. So, for example, rapid bus is going to be up to 20% faster than regular bus service that otherwise exists uh, on those corridors. Uh, fewer stops, all-door boarding, uh, significant what we call transit priority measures on the streets, queue jumps and bus lanes uh, to, to get a little ahead of traffic. Um, and we've got some other uh, customer amenities uh, on the services as well. The, the stops will all have shelters. Uh, we have new real-time next bus information signs um, at the stops. And, and the buses, our beautiful new 60-foot diesel hybrid articulated coaches also have even more comfortable seats. So we're, we're trying to hit on all, the, on all the aspects and all the elements that, that, that can uh, drive satisfaction with our service.
0: Now, I'm told when you mention comfortable seats, I'm told that the number is that the cushions have 20% more cushion. How did you come up with that number?
3: Oh, I, you know, I think that's, that's we work with our uh, different suppliers and vendors and try to match up uh, the weight, uh, the maintainability of the seats, the space of the seats with a little extra comfort.
0: All right. Because it's kind of the opposite of how airlines are going. They're making the seats less comfortable. They don't want you to stay on there and they want to pack as many people in as they can.
3: Well, I really, I like that comparison. Let's keep talking about that. Yes. All of us who uh, fly and see a little bit less legroom each and every time we're, we're trying to make sure we're, 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 making our, our services a little bit more comfortable for our customers.
0: Uh, you mentioned, so fewer stops. So how does, how do you find kind of the, the best uh, compromise there, I guess, that you still have the fast service and some, but, and, but people don't have to get off at certain stops or are still able to get where they need to go?
3: Sure. That, that's a really good question. And, and a lot of our literature and our experience, I, I installed similar service in Seattle when I, was, when I was down there for years. We know that people will trade off a little bit extra walking distance for faster, more frequent and reliable service. So the bus stop spacing is roughly every 400 meters or so. Um, seems to be the right amount that people will walk a little bit further for that uh, more frequent service. And on several of the corridors, there's, there remains underlying local bus service. So if people don't wish to or don't want to um, uh, uh, or not able to walk as far, they can take the uh, local bus service as well. It, it's akin to, if you think about how rapid transit is, SkyTrain, so those, those stops are even further apart typically. So the, the faster, more reliable the service, typically the station stopping is further apart. So this is kind of in between what you think of a SkyTrain, uh, exclusive, uh, right of way service all the way down to a uh, local bus service. This rapid bus is, is in between and it's, it, it is our next phase of demonstrating to the general public using, um, uh, from the uh, mayor's program that we're stepping up our game, that we know that so many people in this region rely on buses. We need to provide better products so that people will be much more comfortable and liable to use our service. Uh,
0: But unlike SkyTrain, they're still subject to traffic chaos and congestion if there's accidents. So are you able to work around that and make sure you can still promise people that they'll deliver those shorter times?
3: Well, that's that's exactly the the key to this program in my mind, and and to be perfectly honest, we need to do a lot more working with the cities. We can bring money to the table through the funding and the mayor's plan, but we have to work with each city that controls the streets. That's why these things that I mentioned before, queue jumps and bus lanes and other, um, uh, other things that we can do to speed up the buses, give them a little bit extra time to get through green lights and so forth, gives us that better chance to, to operate the service more reliably. And I think this is just a start. I think there's more that we can do. I would like to see us eventually work with the cities to do what we call transit signal priority to give buses, for example, a little bit more green time. Um, so we can't guarantee in the same way that we can guarantee when we control the right of way. Um, uh, like SkyTrain, but we can certainly be more reliable and faster. And we've done great work with uh, with the cities uh, in all the corridors where we're implementing today. And I should say, in April, we'll be putting out. Uh, our R2 bus route, uh, Marine Drive, on the North Shore. So that's still a couple months away.
0: <laughs> and so four buses, four of the rapid buses, launched today. You may have answered this, but can you give a number then? For So somebody that maybe was on this particular bus route last week would have, ta- would have taken so long to get from A to B. We're going to shave how many minutes off that?
3: Well, for oh, I don't have that right in front of me, but several of the routes, you're definitely shaving minutes um, off. So that the, um, for example, the uh, R3 Low Heat Highway, from Maple Ridge through Pitt Meadows and Port Coquitlam to uh, Coquitlam will, will save numerous minutes. I don't have those numbers right in front of me, but it's a good t- good time savings.
0: And will they run the same kind of schedule as the other buses?
3: Well, they're, they're more frequent. So the uh, um, Sorry, I meant like
0: bus, hours in the day, like from uh, yes, morning to night. They'll
3: operate through midnight uh, from uh, 6 a.m. or earlier through, uh, through midnight.
0: And and sorry, so four buses today, do you have a goal then on how many rapid buses could bring in or even potentially replace other buses that could get people moving even faster or or goal in the future, what you would like to see?
3: Well, we've got um, seven more um, um, rapid bus corridors planned. These are just uh, the beginning. So two more are funded. Uh, one will be on Scott Road between Newton and Scott Road, uh, Expo Line station. We hope to have that implemented by late 2021 or into 2022. And a second rapid bus corridor from the Canada line um, to the Expo line, you know, connecting Richmond into uh, Vancouver, Burnaby, or New West. We're still working on the routing. And then we have several more routes that are still contained in the mayor's vision that we hope uh, by middle of 2021 to receive funding for. So we see in total um, 11 full um, rapid bus corridors, Um, within this decade. And again, I'd like to see more, and we can hope we can get further than that.
0: All right. Uh, Well, sounds great for people that are looking to get uh, from A to B uh, in a shorter amount of time. Kevin Desmond, thanks so much for your time today. Appreciate it.
3: Thanks for having me.